Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 3, Episode 5, The Crow. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Steve. Each episode, we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie whose horror status is debatable. We look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre, and all are welcome. And uh, before we get into the film, we'll go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? Okay, well, so today we're talking about The Crow. Uh, and I think I've asked a question like this or similar to this before, so sorry for the possible little bit of repeat, but I was thinking, you know, in this, uh, the crow kind of, uh, guides our, our guy, um, through the land of the living. Um, so what's your spirit animal, animal, or what, what animal would guide you around the world of the living after you died? Well, my Patronus has always been and always will be. Uh, a spoiled house cat because you know I only want to be touched when I want to be touched on my terms but also I do want snacks but also please don't touch me too much two and a half pets exactly two and a half no more no less I really I really <laughs> feel like that is going to be the animal that you know carries me through <laughs> I like that <laughs> I've uh for me I've always been I mean I, I like cats a lot as well but I've I've been partial to dogs so probably a dog or a wolf or something like that um so you know probably some big dumb lovable dog that's just great <laughs> i feel like you're a golden retriever at heart joe really <laughs> thank you i'll take that as a compliment <laughs> it is they're so adorable and like friendly and just happy <laughs> <laughs> well thanks on the other side though he's never once found gold and brought it back to me which is a real f spot of frustration for our friendship. <laughs> Rude. I am sorry about that. Bad Joe. Bad Joe. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he sounded like a dog when he did that. It's magic. <laughs> for me, I think because I've created a brand for myself at this point, I would have to have a very <laughs> large chicken that would be my spirit animal because I don't really see my online gamer tag and like I have for my Twitch channel is chicken chaser, which is a reference to the game fable. And I like, I chose that name because I like fable, but a lot of people just call me chicken now because of that. <laughs> and so <laughs> I don't know. I think it had to be a chicken, but like, I really just do like cats because ever since, uh, my girlfriend moved in, she brought her cats, and I've always, I'm allergic to cats, but I never, like, live with cats, and so I've been getting used to these ones and less allergic over time, and uh, and I've always loved them, but I never live with them, so now having the chance to live with them, I really think they're great. So, that's all. I like cats, but if I wanted to be on brand, I'd, it would be a chicken. Maybe I could have a cat and a chicken. Some sort of chicken cat. Yes. No, I, I don't I don't want them fused <laughs> at all. I want them to be two separate. Fine. How come he gets two Patronuses? That's rude. I feel left out. What if a cat had two, like, chicken feet on the front and the back of it? That'd be pretty frightening. Ooh, yeah. 
What if a chicken had teeth on its beak? That'd be hilarious. <laughs> we are getting into horror realm here. If a chicken cat wore <laughs> pants, would it wear pants? Would it wear pants like this or like this? <laughs> we are definitely getting into horror. Oh man, that'll be like the Jurassic Park episode where I put that on the Instagram for people to pick which version of pants would a raptor wear. Or it was the skirt, right? A skirt oh, it was the skirt, the yeah. yeah. That's right, I forgot about that. Uh, so my my spirit animal is, I don't know if it best represents me as a person, but it's definitely, people are probably familiar with the fact that I really like pugs quite a lot. I no longer have a full pug. Uh, they're still alive and in the world. They're just not mine. But uh, I do have a half pug, half chihuahua named Ollie, who if you follow the Instagram at all, you've seen multiple times because I shamelessly post cute pictures of her and I buy her horror movie toys all the time. She is adorable. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I guess I would go with a pug. Um, I mean, I guess there's some similarities there. I, I do want to just you know, lie down on the couch and maybe snuggle with someone while just watching something. And I am excited about dinner time, so I guess there's that. And you do sometimes walk up to me and just sneeze directly in my face. Yeah, but that's because you just haven't brought me any gold yet, so that's what it comes down to. <laughs> Goes both ways, Joe. Goes both ways. Exactly. If you bring me gold, I won't bring you sneezes, so it's your choice. <laughs> I love that you're being extorted over a bodily function. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I guess that'll be that'll be mine. Yep. And hopefully I'm awkwardly adorable, which I see pugs as. So that's maybe maybe I'm that. Maybe I'm awkwardly adorable. I don't know. We'll see. Well, cool. I I always like talking about animals, so that was a fun corner. Well, on to animals that are more badass than the ones we chose. We're going to be talking about The Crow from 1994. Uh, so this is originally based on a comic series by James O'Barr. Uh, James O'Barr wrote the series over a period of about 10 years as kind of a way of coping with the loss of his fiancée, who was killed by a drunk driver. And they're not to put things in a real dark note at the beginning, but there's a lot of dark things involved with this film. So I guess hopefully buckle up for that. Uh, I do have a quick quote here from James O'Barr about how he saw the comic and his kind of purpose in writing it. And I'm going to read it. Wow. Yay. So James O'Barr said, quote, I'd hoped by putting all my murderous fury into ink on paper that somehow magically all the pain, hurt, and self-destructive behavior that followed would dissolve. Shelley's death had turned me into a monster under my own skin, hidden by a stoic face of normalcy. Like a mad cartographer, I charted an ink on paper landscape swept in rage. If there was no justice in the real world, I would invent some. And so his comic series eventually caught on, and then it was optioned and ended up being directed for the film by Alex Proyas, whose name I'm not 100% sure I'm pronouncing correctly, but uh, he also directed films like Dark City, which I eventually want to cover for the show, iRobot, Knowing... Oh, that's a good one. Uh, which one? Dark City. I didn't even think of that one. I haven't seen that in years. It's so good. Sleep. Yeah, Dark. Hmm. I okay. I won't get into a tangent, but yes, Dark City's great. 
I I would watch Jennifer Connelly like eat a bagel, like honestly. So yes, I'm down for this. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. I'd ask for a bagel though, because I'd want one as well. Same. And then for writers, we've got David J. Show. Uh, more mispronunciations for me. Uh, he also wrote films like Leather Face, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Wouldn't recommend that. Texas Chainsaw The Beginning. Also wouldn't recommend that. And Critters 3 and 4, which I haven't seen yet, but Critters 1 was fun. I don't know why I'm commentarying these, but that's what's happening. And then also for TV shows, he worked on both Creepshow and The Outer Limits. And then uh, he also is a horror novelist outside of all of that and worked on an ongoing column for Fangoria. And then it was also co-written by John Shirley, who is also primarily a novelist. Uh, he has worked on the film Twists of Terror, and then he also has worked in TV writing one or two episodes of various series like The Real Ghostbusters or Deep Space Nine, Spawn, Batman Beyond. And then for the back-of-the-box description for The Crow... Young rock musician Eric Draven and his fiancée Shelley are brutally murdered by a ruthless gang of criminals the night before their wedding. One year later, Eric is resurrected as a vengeful superhero in this stylish noir thriller. Out to avenge his and his fiancée's killings by destroying those who committed the murders, the crow becomes a ray of hope for the city while battling his own inner demons. Along the way, he will become reacquainted with a young girl from his former life and make an uneasy alliance with a curious cop. So for intent here, we've got a couple quotes, one from James O'Barr with an interview that he was in, and then one from Alex Proyas. So we'll have those read now. Neil Greenway says, were you involved with the sequels at all? I know that you are quite vocally unhappy with them. And James O'Barr responded, yeah, I had nothing to do with any of the sequels and was against them being made even. I mean, the first film had a definitive ending. There was no reason to make another film other than greed. But that's Hollywood. Anytime something's successful, they want more of the same. But I don't think the people involved understood what made the first one work, or the book for that matter. That it's a love story at heart, and the violence is just ancillary. So they just made some really misguided choices on everything. And I'll pause for a sec. So just to say, at least to point out there. So he's thinking of it more as a love story, which makes sense given his experience and how he's working it out. And a lot of what Eric Draven was going through in his comic version of The Crow was autobiographical. So dealing with love and loss. And then I'll let you continue. Sorry. Uh, so Neil said, do you think that Alex Proyas was just the right man at the time, at the right time, because that first movie struck lightning. It seemed so perfect. To which James responded, stylistically, he was perfect for it. And there is something to be said. It came out at just the right time, too, when America was ready to accept. It wasn't even called goth back then, the alternative youth kind of movement. It was a post-punk, post-Reagan era, so there was a little bit of, like, after World War II, that's when all the film noirs happened. There was this very depressed movement in the U.S., and it's kind of ill-defined. It wasn't just one thing. It just came out at the right time, and it's very much of that period. So there he is kind of describing himself as kind of goth before there was goth, which I, I don't know if I'd say that's entirely accurate. I'm not going to say that I'm an expert on the goth movement, or at least the particular version of it that we're talking about but in a way it kind of started more like the late 70s early 80s and 
a lot of his writing the crow was uh kind of fitting right into that vibe and listening to a lot of the music that would be considered like early goth music from that time period too. So at least him describing it to a degree as part of that goth movement. And then we have another quote here from Alex Proyas talking about the film himself and how he viewed it. All right. So he said, Alex Proyas said, I mean, it's very clear to me where the ideas have come from. Like the Brandon Lee's long trench coat in The Crow, which was then used in almost every other movie, including The Matrix, Blade, and many other movies. You know, this became the preeminent early 2000s sort of cyberpunk gothic superhero guy and girl. There was also those underwor- underworld films that, uh, that was the other one that basically ripped off the whole, um, that the book whole look ripped off the whole look of the book okay so <laughs> sorry i stumbled over that last bit <laughs> no problem no problem i'm requiring people to read out loud like a jerk but uh yeah so just so it is talking about he is talking about basically how much influence the crowd has had and how much he felt like people were kind of like copy pasting some of those visuals some of those styles Um, but also just at least describing kind of what was being copied from it was the cyberpunk gothic superhero kind of look. So it's not exactly him describing the genre of the film, but at least describing what people took from it. Um, So at least I think that that's kind of interesting in seeing that. He's also sort of facetiously described the film as a musical in some senses because of how much the music in the film kind of drives the feel of the story as it moves forward so you know we've got it described at least gothic by both the comic creator and the director of the film as well as having described as a love story which fits right in with the idea of more classical gothic literature Um, but then as far as meta tags go so reception of what we've got for this film uh, we had Ten sites calling it action, five calling it fantasy, two calling it crime, two calling it drama, two calling it sci-fi, and then one each for supernatural, superhero, adventure, thriller, and suspense. Uh, No one described it as horror, and surprisingly also no one called it dark fantasy, which I thought would have been a real easy one to throw on there, but apparently that never came up for any of the streaming services either. Um, As far as Google and Wikipedia search trends you get the textbook October bump for this film. So, you know, there's increased searches for it every October. Of course, that makes sense because it takes place over two consecutive October 30ths and, you know, Halloween day, at least for the majority of the film. Um, It's a lot less conclusive for Wikipedia. You don't really have the October bump there. Um, Of course, the biggest search bump for this, we will discuss in more detail, comes on October 2024. One, when you had the accidental shooting on the set of Rust. So a lot of people went back to look at this one because of the accidental shooting of Brandon Lee. Then as far as looking at the source material, uh, so again, we're going back to goodreads.com, which allows users to designate what genre they think a work of fiction is. Uh, From 567 users, 38% considered it a horror as the most definitive genre for it and then 27 percent called it fantasy and then you have 
10% each for subgenres like gothic, urban fantasy, crime, paranormal, supernatural, romance, thriller, dark fantasy. See, they got dark fantasy, action, and revenge. However, if you want to coalesce some of the other various types of fantasy all into one listing, then fantasy, urban fantasy, dark fantasy, then that ends up being about 35%. So almost equal parts horror, equal parts fantasy in that regard. So The Crow, is it horror? Where's everyone weigh in? I'm going to say that this is not horror. I'm going to side with Mr. Obar on this one and say that this is a love story. I also agree, not horror. I My quick classification is dark fantasy action and and romance, maybe. Yeah, I don't think it's horror either. I think it's more uh, like one of the first things he said was that, it, or one of the first back of the things off the back of the box description was a superhero movie, right? And it pretty much feels like a superhero movie to me more than horror. And uh, I would go around and out all that to say, yeah, again, not horror. I can see how there's some related elements and maybe even plays with some of the horror subgenres that exist. I I get why people would want to call it that, but uh, I don't think it's the most prominent feature of the film. I mean, I feel like folks who really enjoy country music and outdoor activities would call this horror but it's not horror. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if you've had little to no experience with horror, then you might say that, yes, this is horror. Right. right. That's fair. So maybe it's gateway horror. All right. So how familiar was everyone with The Crow before recording this episode? Um, I was pretty familiar. This is, I actually picked this one because I thought it would be a good debate to have. Um, and we'll unpack all that going forward in the episode. But I, I was a big fan of this movie when it came out and I didn't get to see it in 94 when it was released. I watched it probably in 1998, 99. Um, cause I was too young at the time to watch R rated movies. Um, but yeah, big fan of this movie. It holds a very special place in my tiny little, you know, poser Gothic heart. <laughs> um, for me, I, uh, I had a few friends in high school who were pretty into it. And so I watched it several, several times kind of in that era, but then I'd kind of, I guess, shelved it for a long time until this recording. Um, so I'd kind of forgotten a, a bit about it until rewatching it. Um, but I've always liked it. I I had never heard of this. Well, never seen it, sorry. Or I'd never seen any of it ever before. I had heard of it, and I kind of had like a completely different idea of what it was going to be. I don't know. I felt like in my head I was thinking it was an older film, and I was thinking it was going to look more like... Uh, Edward Scissorhands style or something. And it kind of did look like Edward Scissorhands in a way, but not quite like that. So, yeah, basically I had no experience with it and uh, had some preconceived notions about it going in that were kind of broken. But I like that you mentioned that you feel it's the most 90s movie to ever 90s. <laughs> <laughs> like, that really made... That did my heart good. It is like so 90s like anybody that has like a passing knowledge of 90s media would be able to pinpoint this (laughs) yeah i think that's fair 
Um, I had weirdly never seen this movie before. Uh, some of you may in passing have heard. I had this friend growing up named Brianna that was super into this movie, but somehow we never watched it together. <laughs> I don't know why that never happened. It just didn't. Yeah. You made me watch all sorts of like your movies that you had found out about. Like, I can't believe I never sat you down and I'm like, look, we're going to be depressed about this. and We're going to watch this really ridiculous gothic love story. Yeah, I don't know why that never happened. I don't I don't know. It's kind of weird when I think about it. There's trench coats and guitars and pleather pants and blood. Like I I don't know how this escaped us. Oh well, we're making up for it now. Yeah, and I definitely rocked a trench coat for several years. I don't know, probably after the Matrix era of things, or at least close to it. But anyway, um, so at least going for the tone of this film, I kind of wanted to dive a little bit into the idea of how you would define the goth subculture, because this is certainly an important goth movie, I would say, as far as the subculture goes. So I guess how would you describe all of that? Well, I grew up real small town and I was about as goth as you could be with like, you know, straight leg jeans and blonde hair. But um, I would probably define goth subculture with my experience with it as just kind of an appreciation for and a love of all things dark and macabre. Like they are the things that make you happy. They are your little spooky sunshines and rainbows. At least they are for me. I think uh, I would maybe... Also, like, I guess one of the things in my head, it feels like goth can be maybe a little more thoughtful about some of the bigger questions about life and like maybe like thinking about like death and things like that a, a little bit more than a lot of other subculture-y things. Um, so, uh, and just, I guess maybe having a little bit of peace with that idea, uh, I, it, that feels important to goth for me. The only thing that I would really think about it was that it was people who were pretty often interested in kind of the same dark humor and music and other things as I was, but like dressed in black a lot or things like this. But they were they always like had like an intimidating look, but were all very nice people in general that I got along with. So that that's kind of weird. But I was dealing with goth in like the early 2000s mid 2000s not the 90s so are you sure those weren't just emo kids because there is a divide there's a harsh divide yeah. between goths and emos very well, similar cousins if you will they use the same eyeliner a lot i think uh <laughs> i think i had some definite baby goths and some more defined emos at in my time also so there's there was a little of both there's a lot of gray area in that sea of black clothing like you've got your cyber goth you've got your punk goth you've got your victoria goth you've got your romantic goth like there is a myriad of colors in that steam pastel goth rainbow goth like there's yeah it it truly is just the most diverse awesome cool weird little group of folks it's really neat i felt kind of adjacent to it i would never have considered myself goth per se but just i think trying to be kind of part of the the punk movement at that time um i kind of 
definitely had friends or people that were sort of offshoot within the goth movement. And I guess I kind of always saw this kind of a two tiered kind of thing. There's goth style versus goth philosophy. So obviously like the most obvious version of the style would have been like all blacks and eyeliners and trench coats and things like that. But then the philosophy of it being more like gothic than goth being able to find beauty and romance in darkness and uh, I guess I always thought it, saw this kind of as being part of punk as sort of a counterculture movement. So kind of, uh, I don't know, silent protest against conformity in a way. You were a goth ally, if I'm remembering correctly. It was solid. I guess I would call it that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> the goth ally and the symbol is like just a flag that's like several different types of black. <laughs> yeah different shades yeah you have your off black your 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 black black your midnight your black, black your soft black it's it's yeah. very varied so obviously we all looked at this film and we said it, that we didn't think it was horror would you say that it is a goth film though and uh i guess how do you reconcile the two Oh, 100 percent. This is a goth film. I mean, everything from the aesthetic to the lighting, to the costuming, to the makeup, to the soundtrack, everything about this is screams goth. I think it's very much how I described gothic people that I knew and interacted with, maybe intimidating and dark and scary on the surface, but really nice and fun to get along with. Yeah, yeah, I guess I don't have much to add to that. I definitely agree with all that. Yeah, I think that pairs down well. So I think that's at least one of the things I think you think of uh, gothic films maybe falling more in the horror category, but this being part of the goth subculture being kind of a different animal and not having to necessarily be married to the horror genre. They may enjoy some similar things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they go in the same box. So at least I think that's one of the main things that people look at this as and why they would see it as something that would be horror. But I think the next thing would be the Halloween connection. So I guess I wanted to see whether this is a horror movie or not. Is it a Halloween movie to you? This is an every season movie for me, but I get why there's a bump during Halloween because it takes place on Halloween. I don't I don't personally feel like it's that Halloweeny. Like I mean I know it takes place on Halloween, but it, and there is like a few scenes that lead you to believe that, but it's just not the focus at all really or I didn't feel like it was in in focus on it at all. It was just sort of a side note. Yeah, I don't think there's even like any there's no traditional like Halloween imagery that I can think of in the movie. So I guess to maybe kind of like take it back to the Die Hard episode where we're talking about whether or not it's a Christmas movie and, you know, we've done in the past. So what would be enough to make this feel like a Halloween movie? So obviously we're saying it doesn't have enough of the enough items like it takes place in that time period, but doesn't have enough of the iconography of Halloween. I think it's a little bit what Brianna said as far as like it's an all seasons movie for her. And I feel, well, and, you know, obviously this is personal, uh, but it's like for Die Hard, for me personally, Die Hard, and it feels like for a lot of people, like the only time I watch it 
is at Christmas. And I don't feel like the same is, can be said of the crow for maybe, maybe the general populace, but I don't know, you know, that's, I guess just me. Like I would, I would never really think about if I wanted to watch the crow, it wouldn't be like, Oh, it's Halloween. I should watch the crow. I just would watch it any, any old time, I guess. Yeah. And forgive me if I'm contradicting anything that I said during the Die Hard uh, episode, but <laughs> I feel that the Die Hard Christmas isn't just the fact the fact that it's Christmas isn't just necessarily a, a backdrop to the story. It's almost kind of uh, an important part of the story, an integral part of the story, because it's taking place on Christmas, people are gathered for a Christmas party. It sort of has like a family-friendly Christmas message of bringing a family back together. Whereas I feel like this movie, it just kind of takes place on Halloween and Halloween is just a backdrop, but like there's no, there's nothing else to it. You never see trick-or-treaters. You don't really see anything like that you know but isn't the spirit of halloween first off dressing up in a costume that shouldn't be sexy but somehow is and then scaring away the real demons well, you got a point there <laughs> cannot argue with that that's fair also literally every even remotely goth dude dressed up as the crow at least three times in their life like that was the go-to halloween costume you put on your regular clothes you put on modified corpse paint and wrap some electrical tape around yourself best costume easiest costume always gets you laid <laughs> that's why i never got laid in high school man i should have see uh... you should have watched the crow earlier you needed the electrical tape over your clothes not under your clothes joe Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, uh, yeah. okay, all right, I see what I did wrong. <laughs> it's all about location. So, do you think, um, if people do see this as a horror movie, that it taking place on Halloween still might be related to that, based on the search history? Yes, but also this deals with some really dark stuff, and it also deals with a lot of taboo things, so I think that is what kind of, you know folks who aren't really familiar with horror are going to be like, oh, it's it's dark and it's intense and there's these dark themes. Of course, it's it's a horror movie. Yeah, I think that it is probably bumped during October because of people thinking it's a horror movie rather than they think that it takes place on Halloween. Because I could see, like, if you're watching this on on like TV or something, you may even miss that it's a how that it's taking place on Halloween. Like it's that not that like big of a plot point in my opinion. But it is the season to set the city on fire for some reason that's I guess profitable. I don't know. Yeah, I have questions about that. Yeah, there's uh, some for some reason that's like a annual celebration that they do. But I'm not gonna judge them because traditions are fun. It's all about that capitalism because you're not going to get hair extensions that bad unless you do a good devil's night. And Top Dollar knows that and he's willing to work for that like top quality, you know, <laughs> human hair, terrible gelled weave that he's got going on through the whole thing. So this is like ensuring a good harvest, but for your hair. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yep. You're absolutely right. 
Yeah, maybe that's the horror relation. People are looking it up because they're like, can we see the horror that is top dollars, like, bowl cut, but also with extensions? <laughs> okay, but that actor is one of Barrel our very cut. favorite 90s character actors. Is it Michael Wincott, I think? He always plays a bad guy, and it's always amazing. And he usually has a bad weave because he does a lot of period pieces. Yeah, I know him most from uh, Three Musketeers, and yeah. Yeah. So Roachford, isn't that some sort of smelly cheese? <laughs> <laughs> well, digging into another genre that this also might belong to, would you consider this film to be a superhero movie? Maybe? I don't know. I I don't know. I'm so bad at this because I haven't really seen a lot of superhero movies. What does everyone else think? Because I I understand why people would would put put it in that category, but I don't think Eric Draven's a superhero. I yeah, I say yes ish. It feels sort of like a superhero movie, but I I I don't know. It's a little maybe too focused to be a superhero movie in my opinion like he's come back for a specific vengeance um he's not necessarily out to protect people or out to you know right some greater wrong i mean i mean he does a lot of good and that's great i you know can support a lot of the things he is doing but uh but yeah it's not it doesn't quite feel that way it's uh i don't know Okay, but let me submit this. The plot of this movie is essentially exactly the same as Spawn. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so is Spawn a superhero movie? I yes. feel that Spawn is a superhero movie. I also feel that you could very easily have adjusted this plot to be a Punisher movie. That's also a fair point. And Ben Affleck's Daredevil movie borrows heavily from this film. Heavily. I'm sorry, what? Really? Daredevil yes. borrowed from the crow? No. Well, there's yes. actually a lot of very similar imagery now that I think on it. There's the, the whole end fight takes place in a Catholic church. There's uh, the fact that Daredevil also apparently decides to make a his logo in lighter fluid in hopes that someone will light it later. Although Eric Draven has him on that because Eric just lit it on fire himself and didn't just wait and hope somebody did it for him. Yeah. Cause he ain't lazy. Yes. Guy saying I never miss who throws knives and then missing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of similarities. Like you can see how, that movie was heavily influenced by this movie, for sure. Um, I, I think, at least for me anyway, in terms of this being a superhero movie, I won't disagree with anyone, but I kind of wonder if the comparison would even be there if it hasn't been based on a comic book to begin with in the United States, because I think that's mostly, you know, there's lots of different genres within comics, but they coalesced around superhero films after the whole congressional hearings on whether or not they were corrupting the young, and that was kind of the safest genre to go with. So I can see people saying, well, it's a comic book movie, therefore it's a superhero movie, same thing. 
I guess it's not more really substantive some I can talk uh, to add, but just like there is some stuff there where like he does kind of have super superpowers. He you see him like jumping across buildings and things like that, and he's seems to be at least somewhat super strong and can heal himself. Um, so or he is invulnerable, I should say. So I mean, there's things that are there, um, but. Uh, it doesn't quite say superhero to me, I guess. In terms of the power side of things, so the crow appears to be basically invulnerable, at least until the finale, we're not even shown anything that could even hurt him. Uh, Does that undercut the tension of the film, at least in terms of making it feel like the horror side of things? Yes, but I think that there's... um there's a different tension build because you spend 90% of the movie understanding that Eric Draven has these supernatural abilities and we're not really sure why, but the bullets don't hurt him and he's really cool. And like, he's got these awesome pants and you know, these unlaced doc Martens, it was, it's a whole thing. But once we realize at the, like the finale or whatever, where we realize, oh shit, you know, now, now he is vulnerable and now he is a mere mortal that really upped the ante. Cause we got kind of safe for the first half of the film being like, oh, it'll be fine. It's a superhero movie. And then all of a sudden all that gets compromised. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. Uh, I guess to go along with that, I, it just is a little bit of a random thought. Um, cause I mean, they say that, you know, the raven gets shot and that kind of takes his power away. But the raven seems fine for, or the crow, excuse me, the crow, um, uh, seems fine. I mean, you know, it, it pecks the eyes out of the lady and then it flies off at the end. So was it the crow getting shot that like kind of took his powers away? I guess I, I wondered to myself, maybe it was more so that he had been he'd kind of completed what he came back to do. He had already taken out all the gang members um, that had committed this act to him and his fiance. Um, so like top dollars was just sort of not part of that equation. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm off base on that. So there is kind of a reason for that, that I think it can at least partially explain is um, so as we'll talk about a little bit later more in detail, but Brandon Lee died during the filming of this film. And so there were some things that they had to kind of figure out later logistically what they could and couldn't include. And in the comic, there is a character known as the, uh, the, let's see, what is it? The cowboy? I, my goodness, it's like a skeleton cowboy and man, I'm murdering what they're called. Skeleton cowboy. You are right. That is the character's name. Okay, good. Yes. So there is that character and he would show up and kind of explain some of the rules of the situation to, or the skull cowboy. Sorry. That's what it is, isn't it? Oh yeah. Skull cowboy. Okay. I get, I get my crow card taken away. It's okay. I didn't ever get one apparently. (laughs) So uh, Michael Berryman, who horror fans might recognize from the original, the Hills have eyes and various other films. Also weird science. I believe he was in that one too. Um, 
but uh, he was supposed to play the Skull Cowboy, who's a character from the comic, and he was kind of a guide, an additional guide for Eric Draven on his return and letting him know basically what the rules for his abilities were, what he could and couldn't do. And one of the rules that was supposed to be conveyed to him was the idea that he had these abilities while he fought for justice for the deceased, but that he would not continue to have these abilities while fighting for the living. And so what you end up with in the final sequence, there would have been a a moment where basically the Skull Cowboy showed up to let him know that if he was going to fight to save, um, let's see. Sarah. If he was going to fight to save Sarah, then he wouldn't have his abilities for that showdown. Now, they ultimately decided not to include the Skull Cowboy, one for makeup, one for logistics after Brandon's passing and not being able to reshoot scenes. So it was coalesced around the editing process of just the idea of, well, the crow got hurt. So if the crow got hurt, then Eric lost his abilities, but it ends up a little bit nebulous in the final result in the film. Okay, that makes more sense to me. The movie is completely different from the comic. I read the comic after I had seen the film, and it's completely different. Like, the, there are similar characters, and, like, there is this revenge element and goth element, but, like, the storyline in the in the comic book, at least if I'm remembering it correctly, was kind of disjointed and very dreamlike. I think so. I read it recently after watching the movie, and I would say the same. I described it, Joe was asking me what the difference was, and I would describe it as a lot more poetic, a lot more romantic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing, I guess, while we're talking about those differences is James O'Barr, he also talked about initially having some concerns in hiring Brandon Lee because he thought Brandon just seemed way too nice to play the crow. And James O'Barr's version of the comic, uh, he specifically talked about that character being more scary or frightening in the comic. Now, obviously, once Brandon took over the role, he had no reservations, and he's been very vocal about that side of thing. But uh, just going with the idea that he saw the version in the comic as being more scary or frightening, do you find the character of the crow in the film to ever really kind of fit that bill as scary or frightening? No, I think that Brandon Lee's portrayal of Eric Draven gave Eric Draven more heart. Um, in the comic, the, I agree with what James O'Barr said. The character is scarier. Like, he's very unhinged, and it's all about his rage and his wrath. And, like, um, Brandon Lee's Eric Draven is kind and gentle and, you know, has a swift sense of justice. And he will cut a bitch, but he's really kind of a softy with great hair. Yeah, I was thinking, like, I, I, I was never scared of him, but I thought if you could take this movie from the point of view of the gangsters, like, he probably would seem like a, like a horror thing that's just, you know, relentlessly coming after them and isn't going to rest until they're dead. I mean, from their perspective, that it is, they're living in a horror movie, I feel like. <laughs> I guess it's kind of a hard question for me. I think that he can be, he is sort of frightening at times, but he also has like that, like angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer vibe where it's just like, he's really sexy guy, basically. So I do think that kind of takes away from it to an extent. And also I feel like they purposefully in the movie make sure that he feels like, redeemable and not as like 
and not evil that he's doing things for the good for good rather than evil so you wouldn't say that you felt like the crow in the film was ever a source of any sort of horror feeling ultimately i don't think so no not yeah again like not for us the viewer but i i was thinking about one of one of the scenes i really like is um his t-bird's like death scene and just like him realizing who he is who that it is eric draven and just like kind of he starts like just going into this kind of rant a little bit just like you can't be you this is the really real like you know there's no way you can be here and you know you don't come back and he's just having this kind of moment these moments of like realization that he's talking to a dead person and that like that means he's probably going to have to face face down like some of the horrible things he's done in his life he's gonna have to like have he's facing justice basically and like that moment like he is terrified he's in horror mode i guess and and, like so you you kind of see that but you never you never feel the horror as a viewer at least i didn't think so i think honestly that's a good lead into kind of what I would talk about next with this, which is that we've discussed before that a film doesn't need supernatural elements to be horror. And normally this would be in reference to the danger in the film being supernatural, whatever the antagonist is. But in The Crow, the only supernatural element is the hero. So, you know, like you said, it it's horrific for the bad guys, but not for the good guys in this. So I guess along with that, the supernatural element of the film how did it only being on the side of the angels, so to speak, affect your designation of the film? Someone else can go. I got to think about this. (laughs) I think it's right there with what, how you, how you said that, like it's on the side of the angel here. Um, So like, it's, uh, it definitely like as a viewer, as me watching this, I, you know, felt like yes like the person that i want to have these superpowers has them the person that i want to be you know doling out justice uh is able to do that and they're empowered and yeah and these bad terrible people are getting their comeuppance so uh it had a large effect on on me as far as um genre classification because you don't I, I don't feel like you get that very often with horror movies. And if you do, that it feels less like horror. In horror, it feels like, you know, the people that, you, that you're rooting for, the people you want to survive are usually, um, well, maybe that's, not, maybe that's not a fair thing for a lot of movies. But anyways, the quote-unquote good people are often um, just on, have the short end of the stick, I guess. It just makes me think of, like, Walter White saying i am the danger <laughs> um but yeah i don't know i uh like like you said i'm not really ever afraid for him as a character and he i don't think he is per- like the supernatural elements of him i don't think are particularly horrifying either and then also just the way that he's portrayed like playing some angsty rock music on top of buildings like during intermission like the those kind of things like come on he smashed his guitar into his amp there were sparks it was an epic moment 
I, I think it was a great it was a moment. Good end of concert. <laughs> but I think that, right? that. But I think moments like that are sort of take away from me being able to classify him as horrific or frightening in any way. I agree. I I agree a hundred percent with that. Those little those little moments it offsets the even the tiniest chance of a fart it has to be horror. It really just negates it completely. Yeah, and you get that moment where like Sarah comes to the the apartment and is looking for him. She's like, I know you're here. And then like he's trying to kind of hide from her, but then you have the moment where he's like backlit by the sun from behind the window. Oh my god. You don't know yeah. how many pencil sketches I did of Eric Draven standing in silhouette in that fucking window when I was like 14. <laughs> it's like a whole genre of sketchbooks. It was insane. Also, can we talk about how it's a whole year and that white Persian cat is still perfectly groomed and healthy after living in an abandoned burnout apartment building in Detroit? I think it's just like there's a lot of rats around, so it's well fed. And then maybe people are like, well here's fed. a well fed cat that just wants pets. So I'll clean their fur. Seems legit. So I guess the other thing, too, at least in my thinking about it as well, is just the whole idea of whether or not you can have a horror film where the only supernatural element is on the side of the heroes. And I think that you can, but you really have to engineer it differently. As far as a modern example of that, I think the black phone, if anyone here has seen that, comes to mind where the only supernatural element is is really helping the kids from escaping the grabber so i i think you can have a movie that works that way you just have to engineer it differently but i think the whole feel of the crow eric draven as a character it doesn't lend the audience towards being scared of any of the supernatural elements at all so it doesn't really play into making it feel like horror i think it completely takes away from it in this regard um, another thing i guess taking that supernatural element on a broader scope so this film's mythology includes a benevolent entity that wants justice, and it, in doing so, it brings Eric back to life to be able to get that justice and gives him the abilities to execute that. And it also includes at least some kind of afterlife, at least for those who were good, which is indicated by Eric and Shelley reuniting at the end. So I guess given that, does it give the film a hopeful tone at the end of the day, and is that consistent with any kind of horror vibe within the film can't rain all the time that's right it can't i would venture to say that this is a hopeful happy ending even though eric and shelly you know are both still deceased and in their awesome little graveyard i just i don't know it ends on a happy note yeah i think so too i think it's definitely got a hopeful um a hopeful message at the end you know if you you know the the good guys will get what they're what's coming to them the bad guys will get what's coming to them and so it feels feels just it feels it feels nice <laughs> i guess that's a weird thing to maybe say about this movie cuz there are a lot of things going on that are not nice but yeah that's why it's an any season movie and it gives you the warm fuzzies yeah i think they're is not the film is very uh much good and evil there's not a lot of nuance i don't think it's every all the characters especially are kind of like good or evil or uh, i mean there's maybe a little bit of a lesson with 
Sarah's mom, hopefully learning a lesson there. But yeah, there's like it, it has this dark, rough exterior that it's putting out, but it's kind of just a warm and fuzzy movie at the end of the day. Yeah, I could see that. I do think that it kind of ends hopefully, you know, justice has been served, the city's better off. Uh, our surviving main characters are safe, our dead main characters are reunited. Uh, so I think it ends on a happier note, even though it's kind of like, uh, again, it's sort of that whole concept going back to the idea of finding some kind of beauty within the darkness of it all. But at least going back to the earlier beginning of the film, kind of going with, you know, the taboo horror pushing boundaries, the idea of the film's inciting incident is the rape or murder of Shelley, which is Eric's fiance, as well as Eric's own murder. So is that subject alone and the way it's dealt with within the film is that how come that didn't push it into horror territory for you? I think it has a lot to do with the way the sexual assault was portrayed. I mean, you very obviously knew what was going on, but I don't think it was graphic. You know, we're not talking about a, a last house on the left situation. I think it was where they had like a nine minute rape scene that for me, that's what the big difference is. It is backstory. It is context. It is horrifying and it's horrible, but that that incident alone doesn't make the film horror right off the bat. Like we sexual assault is something that a lot of different films deal with dramatically. So it's just not enough for it to be horror. Yeah. And it feels a little more like, I mean, it's, it's horrifying. Absolutely. But it does feel a little more like that could have been in a crime drama of some sort. Um, doesn't have a horror flavor to me, I guess. Yeah, I think that whole beginning sequence is, I, is portrayed with all kinds of interesting lighting and music, and it's almost artistic in a way. To It's like showing the tragedy of it, but without uh, making you... I don't know, it's hard to say. Like it, it, it shows the tragedy of the situation, but it isn't like taking you deep into those people's feelings and making you putting you in their shoes while this is happening to them, I guess. So it comes off almost more artistic than disturbing. I would agree with that because I think the film, it shows you what happened, but it doesn't make you feel it. And I think that the comic differs greatly in that respect because in the comic the sequence is more prolonged and it's the result of a car accident there or not a car accident exactly but they're stuck on the side of the road and then all of these villains roll up in their car and then attack them the first thing they do is shoot eric but uh they don't kill him by that shot they think they do but it really just leaves him paralyzed and aware and basically helplessly having to sit and hear and witness what happens to his fiance. So in that way, this film kind of cleans up that much rougher version of events from the comic. Yeah, it was way less gritty. I feel like it, the crow could very easily be something that could be me remade into something more similar to like sin city where it's like, really kind of brutal and you do get emotionally invested and you feel those things as they're happening 
Yeah, and I know they do have a remake that they're working on, and I hope they don't choose to go that direction with it. Um, well, I won't say it's a remake, I guess, because James O'Barr has been pretty clear about it, and he doesn't see it as a remake either, just a re-adaptation of his original work. But yeah, I hope that they keep in mind what was what worked about the way it was portrayed in this film. I'm hopeful for the next reboot of this because I think that Bill Skarsgård is fucking amazing and yeah. he did such an amazing job with Pennywise that I think that if if anyone's going to be able to, you know, pardon the pun, but breathe new life into the character of Eric Draven after Brandon Lee's tragic passing, I really hope it's going to be him. Now, the director, I don't know. I don't know enough about him. I just know that he was snogging with the chick from Twilight back in the early 2000s. Oh, I didn't know about that. Oh, yeah, honey. He broke up Bella and Edward. Oh, it was tragic. It's all so <laughs> sad. So as far as horror subgenres, if I was going to slot this into a horror subgenre, I think that it closely aligns the most with revenge horror. Typically, revenge horror centers around watching a victim almost always a woman, horrifically attacked and being left for dead. However, the victim survives that attack, then horrifically retaliates on those attackers. Uh, examples you've already mentioned, The Last House on the Left. Of course, there's things like I Spit on Your Grave, and then more recently, the aptly named Revenge. So I wanted to see if anyone was familiar more so with that horror subgenre or not, at least first off. Obviously, you are Brianna, but feel free to elaborate. Oh, I am. And it honestly, next to like the whole it, this is one of my least favorite genres of horror. I think it's lazy and it doesn't entertain me. So I while I'm familiar it, yeah. with it, it's not my jam. It's not enjoyable to me. I agree. I guess I'm not super familiar with the subgenre. I have not seen any of those movies that were mentioned. Um, so I don't know if I can comment too much on that, I guess. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. It's right up there with your standard, like, torture porn. It's just, it's lazy. It, it's like, mm. like torture porn before there was torture porn, because you yeah. watch some of those movies, like yeah. The Last House on the Left originally, like, there's so much focus on the initial attack of the person who was hurt, and it just seems so unnecessary a lot of the time. I think revenge as a modern variation of that horror genre does a better job because it doesn't focus quite so much on the attack but just the even the original i spit on your like the original last house on the left and then the remake and then i spit on your graves remake at least particularly i haven't seen the original of that yeah you just spend so much time focusing on the initial attack that it just feels unnecessary at least to me personally i'm not gonna i don't know yuck anybody's yum but i just i can't get into it but uh, anyway, well, so at least to go into that idea. So as I said, typically the horror, that horror subgenre centers around the brutality of the attacks, both to the victim initially, which we've already talked about, that they kind of went with a lighter touch on it, if that can happen. And then towards the attacks by the victims uh, later on their revenge for their initial attack. So I wanted to see... Uh, did you find the death sequences in this film particularly brutal? Do they elevate to that horror level or is it more like action movie violence? 
I think for the time period that this was made, the death scenes were pretty damn good, but it does read more like an action superhero movie than it does a horror movie to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I, I don't think it ever shows that in a way that a horror movie would show it. It feels a lot more action film vibe. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I guess some of them are kind of brutal again. Like I mentioned the, uh, T-Bird one, like you, I guess it's, that's just, I've already said, I guess, but that's just an interesting scene to me because you see the horror in that character's face and in his actions and what he's saying. Um, so there, there's horror there, but you never feel that on like a first person level. But then even when he does die, right? Like there's the emotional part when he's set up, but at that point not injured, but the actual death scene itself is just like an over the top car explosion, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Just the action movie death. But he duct taped him by the head into his own car and then dropped an M80 in his crotch. I mean, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not commenting on quality. Clearly a good death scene. Just more action (laughs) than horror. (laughs) So I have a couple of things to say about that. So one is I recently watched uh, Child's Play 2, which is 1990, kind of similar time frame. And uh, in that movie, that movie is way more brutal as far as like the death scenes that happen, um, like a guy having doll eyes punched into his own eyes and his head and killed <laughs> yeah. that way and like stuff like that. Uh, so that to me is an example of really brutal violence in a movie from that time period, whereas this movie is uh, for one, like what has been said, there wasn't like direct blood and gore kind of involved too much with with the killings of these people and also the people that he was killing were almost like cartoon characters if that makes sense like they were just uh, they were like guys out of dick tracy and so it was just like i think that took away from like any kind of leaning of their death scenes being horror because to me, they were portrayed very much as not real people. Yeah, there was no humanity in any of um, that, the the gang members' like background. You never felt anything for them. You didn't feel sorry for them. You're like, oh, this is a horrible person who does horrible things. I can't wait to see them die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of weird in a way, too. Just, again, thinking back to the comic, the whole way that the that Eric Draven deals with fun boy is a lot different because he almost kind of turns him. So he's sort of like his uh, informant throughout the film until he Mm -hmm. does kill him and like, or throughout the comic. And then fun boy is kind of like, I don't know, asking for requesting death at the end of it all, which I know it's, it's a lot more of a nuanced dynamic than you get with any of the characters in here. So it's like they take, the nuance of any of them out entirely. And like you say, just make them kind of cartoon characters that you want to see die. So I guess with this, uh, it sounds like none of us would really consider revenge horror, even though there's some similarities there with that genre. I don't think so. Accurate. Okay. Well, another thing that I've seen people argue for why this film isn't horror. And of course we've dealt with this 
in great detail whether or not something has to be scary or not to be horror and ultimately deciding that that's not a big element. But that is the thing people cite is that they don't think this is horror because it's not scary. So rather than deal with why that isn't a huge weighting factor, uh, which we have definitely covered in other episodes, see, for instance, Star Trek First Contact is a recent example where we had a bit more of that discussion. But uh, just to get into, do you think this film is ever trying to be scary? And is it scary in a horror movie type way at any moment? No, I think we pretty much always know that the hero's gonna win in this one. Like, was there doubt in anyone's mind that he'd be cool and he'd just, you know, slide on back into the grave with his hot girlfriend? Because I always knew it was going to happen. Yeah, I never doubted he would win. Yeah, agreed. I guess if there's something I was I was just thinking about, like, sort of um, Top Dollar and his sister girlfriend, uh like they're they're they feel icky <laughs> i guess for lack of a better way to describe it where they're like cutting people's eyes out and stuff like that and i think like some of those things like they're trying to be a little scary and like be like oh these are you know these people are you know cut people's eyes out and stuff like that how are we going to deal with them uh there's maybe a little bit of trying to be scary with that type of thing um but uh but yeah, again, I never, I never doubted that, you know, it was going to, it was all going to work out in the end. Yeah, the incest definitely played towards like that whole social taboo thing that we see in horror. That's true. But also, can we also appreciate the fact that Top Dollar had like the best fucking lines in this whole movie? Like, <laughs> car, car, bang, fuck, I'm dead. Like this whole thing was hilarious. It was so good. <laughs> this is one of the most quotable movies of the 90s, in my humble but correct True. opinion. <laughs> I can't cite it exactly, but I know that was the thing I saw Alex Prayas talking about as far as people being inspired by this movie and him saying that he saw exact lines from this movie copied by other films later. I couldn't necessarily find any examples of that myself, but I'm kind of curious if those exist, if there's some verbatim lines used here. I still think for me personally, the best line in the film, and I'll butcher it so I won't even try because I don't remember the exact wording, is just what Eric Draven says to um, Sarah's mom, you know, about like mother is the the name of God on oh, the lips and yeah. hearts of every child. That's just an amazing line. Yeah. Yeah. That is from a piece of literature. That is not an original line. That's from another book. I'd have to look it up to remember it. Okay, because I do remember that it was it was in the comic. It's too. from Vanity Fair, yeah. Okay, yep. so he borrowed it from there. Yes, and there's a couple of things that are borrowed from uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. There was a lot of like quotable quotes in here that the the scriptwriter did not write. And I know that at least for the comic, it quoted heavily from various artists like Joy Division. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm going to have to go like dig up all my old spooky goth tracks now because this this was an excellent soundtrack to begin with. <laughs> Do you feel like the stuff that is scary in this, the idea of a gang attacking or people like that? Do you feel like some of those elements were too real to feel like a horror film? I know we talked about the bad guys being cartoonish, so that almost flies in the face of that. But I guess in terms of the incident itself. I think a lot of the things that are being dealt with, like, you know, we're we're taking a look at, uh, we're, we're dropped into this dark, decaying, urban 
atmosphere where, you know, there is poverty, there is crime, there's assault, there's abuse, there's neglect. There's like, there's this overwhelming sense of hopelessness. So my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> like, There's a lot of really dark themes in this. What does everyone else think? I think that because, because of what we said about um, like the, the gang members feeling like cartoon characters that definitely took it. It's like, it's sort of like softened the edge of it. Cause like, yeah, that's a real thing and that's scary, but because of the over the topness of how they're portrayed, it's sort of, it makes it feel less real. It makes it feel less um, plausible. Uh, but you know, even though it, it is a plausible thing that could happen in the real world, um, so I guess it's for the movie's context does just dull the edge of that a little bit for me. Yeah, I think overall the film to me feels like like the whole crime, the all that sort of is taken like from the noir standpoint, like a detective sort of film or like watching a police film. So I I don't think that those scenes are meant to be like particularly scary in my opinion like like scary movie scary. Yeah. I would agree with all that. There are too many comedic lines in it. Like come on, the the Jesus walks into a bar joke. That was glorious. <laughs> Can you put me up for the night? <laughs> okay. Well, so the other thing I wanted to kind of address, um, I, to pun intended, to address the crow in the room. As most people are uh-huh. probably, I know, it's terrible. As most people are probably aware at this point, there was an accident with a gun on set that took Brandon Lee's life. There are several types of prop cartridges, rounds, that are used in filmmaking And in this case, the incident involved a combination of two different types. Uh, One round that looks like a real round, but is supposed to be incapable of being fired. And a type of blank round that sounds real, but has no bullet to fire. So so what happened in the case of the crow? For the first round, all the gunpowder is removed, but the primer wasn't, but should have been. When this prop round was used the primer still had just enough force to push the bullet into the gun barrel where it stayed for i think as i understand several days but i'm not 100 percent sure on the time frame the next time the gun was used the blank round was put into the gun so again the blank has no bullet but it has gunpowder and in this case the normal amount of gunpowder you would find in a standard round So when the blank was fired, it shot the bullet that had been lodged in the barrel earlier with less velocity than a normal bullet, but tragically enough to be lethal. So I also, if you want more details of exactly how that occurred, there are plenty of sources you can reference. But personally, I found the series Cursed Films episode on The Crow really helped me kind of understand what happened. Um, and, and it's also important to say that the scene, the, so the scene that they were shooting where this actually occurred was the scene where Eric walks in on his girlfriend being assaulted. And 
That is not in the film. There's not anywhere you can see that in the film. None of that footage was used because originally the idea was he walks in and he gets shot by Fun Boy. And so Michael Massey is the one that fired the trigger and has obviously been like completely traumatized by that and something he's had to work through his entire life and doesn't talk much about. Um, but when they redid the scene, when they were asked by Brandon Lee's family to finish the film because they saw it as his legacy, and it is, they refilmed that with a body double, and instead Eric gets a knife thrown at him, and then they do bring him over and shoot him. But So I guess just to say that his actual death is, of course, not in the film. There was no way they were ever going to use that in the film. But the big question with the genre designation for The Crow is, can the circumstances surrounding a film change the genre of the film? Or kind of to put it another way, if The Crow standing alone doesn't feel like horror, can it become horror because the audience knows that Brandon Lee died on set or because the audience sees the film as cursed? I think the tragedy definitely boosted this film's horror potential because it, I feel like it did kind of develop its own urban legend around it. Like there were so many rumors that, you know, followed the death of Brandon Lee for probably a, a full decade afterwards. Um, I think, yes, I think that the, the circumstances of a movie can absolutely affect its classification. And I think this is one where people would probably take that into consideration. It's a weird thing to me, uh, and I kind of, kind of hate that it happens. Like it reminds me of like uh, Heath Ledger dying after um, filming The Dark Knight, and that wasn't that one wasn't on set, but it took place close to the time of filming and all that. Um, and it's sort of these films kind of get like this like reputation, like oh somebody actually died, and like that's cool, and like I I hate that. I hate that that. Uh, like we're talking about somebody actually dying and I hate that that sort of gets romanticized a little bit. Um, but I, I, I guess as far, I'm getting a little off topic from your question. Sorry about that. Um, but, uh, but it's just like, I, I feel like it's a little easy to forget that we're talking about real people here. Um, and I, I do like that. Um, I think it's really cool that, Brandon Lee's family and um, his fiance Eliza uh, were like were uh, pushed to have this movie come out anyways and to finish it uh, because it being his legacy and I think it's really fitting for that. I just don't don't, don't like that it. I don't know. I don't like the feeling around that a little bit. Not not around that. About I I really like the feeling around the the family pushing for it for him. Um, but I don't like the feeling of like other people like being attracted to it for, because somebody died on it. Um, if that you don't like it being sense. exploitative, like you don't like it being yes. exploited. Yes. Yes. Thank you for putting that better. <laughs> but I guess as far as it's genre classification, um, I don't know. I, I, I think you do get this kind of, curse around it i I don't feel like it changes the genre um per se uh but it does get sort of this ghost following it around per se yeah i i think i did a little bit of reading but obviously uh this is a kind of a cult classic film and i think a lot of cult classic films tend to have these sort of 
real life uh, events that were associated with them that kind of add somewhat to the, I guess, mystique of the film in some people's eyes. Um, so yeah, I think that this is a story that is that goes along with the movie that should be told because it's the legacy of the actor. Um, but I, you know, like Joe was saying, it does kind of feel, I'm sure that there's people out there that kind of like romanticize that aspect of it and certainly should not be it, but it, it is whether people like it or not kind of part of the cult following of the film, I guess that the story of Brandon Lee there is nothing more goth than someone being struck down in like the prime of their youth and strength and beauty. Like that is what it's all about. So it just, it, it's an unfortunate, horrible tragedy, but it absolutely cemented this actor's legacy. It's true. And it kind of uh, comes full circle, right? The inspiration for the comic is because of the lost love and then the film eventually coming to the film and ending it with another lost love, you know? But I do think one of the things that, you know, so I guess not to like go deep into my religious persuasions of things, but I would consider myself an atheist at this point in my life. And I know that there are a lot of people that talk about various films that are cursed. And I don't personally feel that there's any cursed film because a curse would involve some sort of supernatural element that was basically there and haunting a thing and for me personally i don't feel like there's any evidence that something like that exists uh, of course your mileage may vary on your own religious views and how that would play into whether or not something could or could not be cursed but i think at least what it really comes down to is the idea of people trying to make sense of something that's tragic when something feels so big that having a simple answer doesn't feel like it's enough and of course that comes into play in bigger issues where people see something like 9-11 or maybe the death of Princess Diana and say, like, that's too big of a deal for it to have such a simple answer. And I think that on a smaller scale, people look at films like this, something like The Crow, and say, you know, Bruce Lee died younger than he should have, and now his sons died younger than he should have. And so they look at it and say that there's some sort of curse instead of looking at the very real problems that surrounded the making of this film and that, you know, they were under a lot of stress, trying to get under budget, trying to work for the studio, corners were cut, people were tired and maybe didn't do their job to the full extent of it. And really that's all it comes down to, right, is that people made mistakes and that those mistakes still happen. So you have stuff that happens like on the set of rust when really, and I would absolutely advocate for this. There is absolutely no reason in modern Hollywood, why a real gun capable of firing a bullet should ever be used in a film anymore. There is just no Thank need you. for something like that, that ever. So much of that. <laughs> so I think to me, that's the real big lesson to take away from this. I do think that people would look at this film and they would feel you know, maybe the curse that they think exists in their head or that they hear people talk about would influence whether they saw this as something sinister in the film as a whole. But I do think that it's rather telling that if you look at, say, 
The Exorcist as a film, there's a lot of the people that worked on that film that are more than happy to talk about the quote-unquote curse for that film uh, because I think maybe the deaths and things that people cite maybe didn't hit as close to home for them. But if you look at The Crow and look at the crew being asked about the curse of The Crow, it's not the crew that worked on the film that think that there was a curse. It's just people talking about it that weren't there. The people that worked on it see it as a tragic accident as it was, and aren't trying to weirdly romanticize what it is that happened. All that being said, I do think it probably has an influence on how people take the film, because I think it's so connected with this film at this point, you almost can't have a conversation about the film without mentioning it. Anyway, sorry, hopefully that wasn't too long of a tirade, but there's that. Yeah, I don't think that you can talk about this film without... Uh talking a lot about brandon lee and the legacy that he left and his performance so i think that it's worth saying all that and i i do think that it's it is good that i'm sure i know it was very painful for everyone involved with this film to pick up and then finish this but i he gets to live on you know brandon lee like it's tragic that this happened but he gets to live on he gets to be remembered he was part of this flashpoint of a film that's still emulated today that we're still talking about today and so at least in that sense he's someone that i think we'll always remember so i guess getting into the bottom line of it um i think we kind of know some of the answers already but do you like this film would you recommend it hell yeah i would um i will admit um after watching it this most recent time it's pretty much 90s cheese but it's it's amazing it's an absolutely delightful romp. Ten stars. Yeah, I'm there too. I enjoy it a lot. And I think, you know, what you said, Matt, it's the 90s, 90 thing that ever 90s or however you put it is spot on. <laughs> uh, so there's definitely that. But I do enjoy it. And that's great. And I would recommend it. Yeah, I think it was a really fun film to watch. And uh, it gave me sort of the same feeling as watching like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the series, uh, or things like that from kind of close to the similar time period. Uh, And yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, and as I had said, I had never seen this film before preparing for this episode. Um, I was kind of disappointed because we were going to meet James O'Barr at Fan X, but then he unfortunately couldn't come. So I I was wanted to, I don't know, talk to him a little bit about it and see i guess where he weighed in but i at the same time too i wanted to be respectful about it because i know obviously the story of this was born out of personal tragedy and things like that um but uh unfortunately i didn't get a chance to meet him so maybe maybe someday but uh i i think this is a really it's a really good film it's a really fun film it's a very influential film and i didn't realize how influential it was until watching it and just seeing like honestly you can point to so many films afterward that clearly were impacted by this film so i mean its legacy is just you know continues to live on so i definitely would recommend it even if it's a film that you don't think you would like i think it's culturally significant is what i would say there's a handful of films that i've seen in my life that i feel like you need to have seen to get what's going on in pop culture and this is one of them i would say is that it's one that you need to see to understand what people are referencing, what people are riffing off of. Even if you even if you decided you didn't like it, it's still worth it on that level. And aside from all that, it is still a good film, so it's worth more even than that. 
I mean, how absolutely iconic is that long black trench coat to 90s media, TV, and movies? Like, my God. <laughs> like, that's everywhere. Yeah, immensely. Yeah. Like I said, it influenced me. I wore a black trench coat <laughs> black trench coat at the end of the 90s and beginning of the 2000s and had no idea it was probably because of this film. Well, anyway, any other thoughts on this film before we close out? Go watch it. Go download a soundtrack. It's amazing. Go be spooky. I support you. <laughs> Go play your guitar on a rooftop. With your favorite bird. And be really awesome to your cat. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Is It Horror? Uh, for our next episode that comes out in two weeks. And sorry for the gap there. This is supposed to come out a week earlier, but it just didn't work out that way scheduling with the holidays. But we're back on track. So in two weeks, you can join us again where we will be doing our Christmas episode where we will be talking about Violent Night. So join us back here for that. I have been Steve. And I've been Brianna. And I'm Joe. I'm impressed that you made that Violent Night announcement sound like we didn't just come up with it at the beginning of this recording. <laughs> Damn it, Matt, don't blow our cover. We are organized and know exactly what we're doing. Exactly. Well, yeah, join us bye. for that and uh, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> I'm going to go smash the guitar. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. To stay up to date on all things Is It Horror, follow us on Instagram or X at Is It Horror Pod, or email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, you can recommend us to a friend, follow and rate us on your podcast app of choice, or you can check out our store on Redbubble. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself, Is It Horror?